day of COVID complexities, a global town hall. No matter where you are today, we are so glad to have you here. My name is Matthew Hughes, and I serve as the Executive Director of the International Relations Council, the Kansas City affiliate of the World Affairs Councils of America. The World Affairs Councils of America is a national network of apolitical, nonpartisan educational organizations around the US dedicated to fostering grassroots understanding of and engagement in international affairs. We would like to thank particularly our World Affairs Council colleagues from Harrisburg, Denver, Tennessee, Western Massachusetts, Colorado Springs, and Kentucky and Southern Indiana for their help with planning this event. We would also like to thank our generous sponsors for this global town hall, Harrisburg University of Science and Technology and the University of Kansas Medical Center. They recognize the significance of this discussion in contextualizing the COVID pandemic and understanding its trajectory as a matter of public health and global citizenship. Thank you to them. It's hard to believe that at this time last year, none of us could have accurately predicted what life would be like right now. Few of us in the general public knew anything about what a coronavirus is, much less the sort of significant impacts 2020 would see and the impacts have been many and challenging. There's been a lot written and said about COVID-19 in the last few months, but in the United States, we've heard far less about its impact and prospects in the developing world. Our hope is that tonight's conversation, coupled with part two tomorrow, changes that and carves out the space and time we need to meaningfully consider this pandemic in a truly global context. This evening's program will begin momentarily with our esteemed keynote presentation, followed by an illuminating panel discussion with journalists who cover different regions of the world. As you have questions throughout the program, we invite you to send them in using the Q&A feature at the bottom of your screen, and we'll be happy to pass them along to the moderator. We also welcome our visitors on Facebook and invite you to, to do the same in the Facebook comments. Please do join us tomorrow evening as well for the second part of the discussion focused on the global response to COVID and the pandemic's future. It is now my great pleasure to welcome our keynote presenter for this global town hall to help us understand pandemics past, present, and future. Dr. Ezekiel Emanuel is Vice Provost for Global Initiatives and Chair of the Department of Medical Ethics and Health Policy at the University of Pennsylvania. From January 2009 to January 2011, he served as Special Advisor for Health Policy to the Director of the White House Office of Management and Budget. Dr. Emanuel received his MD from Harvard Medical School and his PhD in Political Philosophy from Harvard University. He has written and edited nine books and over 200 scientific articles and is currently a columnist for the New York Times. Dr. Emanuel, welcome and thank you so much for joining us. The floor is yours. Thank you very much for having me. And uh, this is a very important uh, topic. Um, let me begin uh, in a place that many of you may not think is relevant, but the 1960s and 70s. It was at that time that we had an explosion of antibiotics, vaccines, and many, many people in the established medical community thought infectious disease diseases were a thing of the past. We had prevention through vaccines. We had treatment. Um, we just didn't have to worry about them. And only uh, foolish people would go into infectious diseases. Thankfully, there were enough foolish doctors to continue because it wasn't too long thereafter that the world was confronted with HIV. Initially, we didn't know it was an infectious disease, but it became pretty clear in the mid-1980s that we were confronted with an infectious disease. Since the turn of the century, we've had a number of infectious diseases that have spread around quite rapidly. We had SARS, as you know, in 2000 and 2003 and 2004. We had H1N1 in 2009 and 2010, and I happened to be in the White House participating in managing that 
for the White House. We had two episodes of Ebola in West Africa um, and in the Congo. We had uh, MERS, the Middle East Respiratory Syndrome uh, virus, another coronavirus. Uh, we had Zika. Um, we've had plenty of infectious diseases. We've also had outbreaks of measles in this country as well as, well as meningococcus, uh, mainly due to lack of vaccinations. It's not the case that infectious diseases are has been. It's the case that we have serious infectious diseases and, as we're learning from this COVID, serious threats of pandemics. I began intersecting in the topic of pandemic preparedness and how to think about it in 2005, when the then Secretary of Health and Human Services, Mike Levitt, um, commissioned uh, work on how to plan for an influenza pandemic because he saw the threat of SARS and thought that the United States was underprepared. Uh, I got involved because they created a priority ranking system for who in this country ought to receive vaccine in the case of a pandemic. Um, and I thought their priority ranking system was wrong. But it led me to think deeply about pandemics and preparation. Uh, since 2005, in that initial report by HHS, there have been a number of updates in 2008, 2017. Many people in the government recognize the threat potential of pandemics. And yet, we took very little action. Why did we take very little action? Well, the answer is pretty clear if you think about human psychology. Yes, the magnitude of the harm as we're learning is quite large, but the likelihood of the event occurring quite small. The last pandemic we had was in 1968, last flu pandemic we had was in 1968. Worldwide, roughly a million people died it wasn't that bad. Um, and in the 20th century, we had three flu pandemics, 1918, which of course was horrendous, 1957, which was slightly, uh, was slightly worse than 1968 and then 1968. And I think people became complacent, thinking we had vaccines, we could get on top of this. You saw that in this administration, because while they were warned about the importance of preparing for a pandemic, and mostly people were focused on flu, uh, they um, hired a uh, person to address pandemic threats on the National Security Council, Admiral Zimmer. I actually urged them to hire Admiral Zimmer. I spoke with the president himself about it, and they did hire him, but then they quickly ended up firing him and did no preparation. Let's face it. Our response to this pandemic has been abysmal. There's no country in the world that has some special treatment or special way of detecting COVID. We're all countries in the same boat. And yet many countries, Taiwan, South Korea, Japan, have done much better than the United States has. We have had a singularly terrible response. Why? I would say that there are three reasons. The first and most important is poor leadership. We have a leader who changes his message, has not gotten on message, um, and is incapable of management and addressing problems. He was told to lock down the country at the end of February at the latest, and again in March. Uh, he was told to create a number of working groups to address problems of testing, PPE, ventilators, vaccines, therapeutics. He didn't do that. It was just an abysmal result. And simultaneously, he undercut federal agencies. Second, partially because of that leadership, but not only because of that leadership gap, there has been inconsistent messages. One of the things the CDC has often said is you need a consistent message and you need to repeat it often. And even the CDC did not follow its own advice. We have not had a consistent message and it's therefore hard for the average person who doesn't pay attention that deeply to know what to do. And the third problem is we have never 
taken the time we have to actually address and put in place the testing, tracing, and isolation regime we would need. To get our arms around this, it's not that difficult. We would need about eight to 10 weeks of lockdown, and I believe the American public has the fortitude for that, to bring the rate of new cases down. It would have to be national, as we've learned. We would then have to ease up having people wear masks, keep distance, have hand hygiene. So I think that is possible. Where do we go from here? Well, clearly this administration and much of the world is betting on a vaccine and having a vaccine that can address the problem. We are having, there are probably 200 vaccines in development. Uh, we have uh, now more than 20 in human, more than 30 in human trials. Uh, we have a number in phase three trials looking for efficacy. Proving a vaccine is effective is only part of the challenge. There are additional challenges. Inside the United States, there's the challenge of producing enough and multiple steps towards packaging it, sending it out, and actually administering it. Just to give you a flavor for those challenges. We need special glass vials, not the glass that you're used to or drink out of, but special glass that moderates the temperature. There are only a handful of companies, one in the United States, Corning, and a couple in Europe that actually make that glass. We need stoppers, and we need hundreds of millions, if not billions, of these. Then we may need a cold chain. We will then also need to fill these uh, vials. Uh, that's called fill finish. Put the vaccine in there and stop them. That is done in factories that are 100 times more sterile than surgical operating rooms in hospitals. You cannot just flip your fingers and put them up. The world has been running pretty low on excess capacity of fill finish facilities. We run at 85 to 90%, the whole world in fill finish for all vaccines. If we take some of that offline to put it, to redirect it towards COVID, there'll be other vaccines that won't be done. We need new fill finish lines and new fill finish uh, factories. Um, the government needs to do that and yet, we have only done a little bit of that in terms of getting new lines up and running. Once you have fill finish, you actually need syringes and needles. Again, hundreds of millions, if not a billion needles just for the United States, because we're most likely gonna have to give everyone two shots, at least of the initial vaccines. Um, there aren't that many companies that actually produce syringes and needles in that kind of quantity. Uh, BD is the main one. And it's only recently that the government has actually let out a contract with them to install another line to produce enough syringes. And then it has to get to communities and be administered. Now on a good year, we administer 109, 110 million influenza vaccines. That won't be enough to get herd immunity to COVID. We would need to administer over 230 or 250 million uh, people. Uh, in addition, we probably have to uh, um, vaccinate them twice uh, because all the vaccines that we're looking at are, at the moment, are required two vaccinations. That adds complexity. It requires figuring out who gets it and then uh, being sure that they get the second one four weeks later. There will be a huge loss unless we have good technology and good ability to track down people and make sure they get that second dose. We're not gonna have enough vaccine in the United States. There's now a National Academy uh, panel that is looking into how we prioritize people in the United States to get a vaccine. Uh, they've just 
release their report for public comment. Um, one of the things that is interesting in that report, and I recommend it to you, if you're at all interested in how we're gonna distribute the vaccine, is that in tier one, uh, at the top, uh, our healthcare workers, first line responders, and tier 1B uh, include people who are at significant risk because of their comorbidities, their other health condition and diseases. It turns out in the United States, that group is 193 million people. Two thirds of the population is at high, significantly high risk. Those are people with obesity and diabetes and emphysema and cardiac disease and cancer. We're gonna need rationing inside rationing. Um, and you who are listening to this and who might otherwise be healthy and not over 65, you'll be down the list of getting a vaccine. Um, and how that happens and its ethics is open to question. I wanna conclude by saying a word or two about what's evolving regarding distributing vaccine among countries. After all, you're a uh, council that is interested in world affairs and therefore the distribution of vaccine, not within the United States, but among countries is of great interest to you. You may have seen yesterday's announcement by the president that we're not joining this COVAX facility. The COVAX facility is a mechanism set up by the WHO, Gavi, which is an organization that distributes vaccines to low and middle income countries, and CEPI, which is an organization for emergency preparedness for pandemics. They've set up this organization called COVAX to buy vaccine and distribute to countries they're committed to distributing it fairly and equitably. That's not the only group that's committed to distributing vaccine fairly and equitably. Actually, vaccine manufacturers, AstraZeneca has publicly said that they want to have a broad and equitable distribution. A couple of days ago, the CEO of Lilly said that there needs to be broad and equitable distribution of a vaccine to other countries and we shouldn't just keep a vaccine for the United States. In addition, leaders of many countries have suggested that we need a fair and equitable distribution of a vaccine. Justin Trudeau led seven prime ministers of countries in writing an op-ed in the Washington Post about the need for a fair and equitable distribution and a commitment by these countries to a fair and equitable distribution. The only problem is almost no one defines what a fair and equitable distribution of a vaccine looks like in this pandemic. How do you distribute a vaccine? Well, tomorrow at 2 p.m., Science is going to release an article that I have authored along with uh, 17 other co-authors, mainly public health people, ethicists, and political experts trying to define what a fair and equitable distribution among countries is. We argue, and I think this applies not just to COVID, but to any situation like this where we have a scarce resource that needs to be distributed. We argue that there are three important values that ought to guide a fair and equitable distribution. Limiting harm, rectifying disadvantaged groups, and equal concern and respect, mainly non-discrimination against groups and people because of their race or their religion uh, or their sex. Those three principles lead you to distribute the vaccine where it will do the most to reduce the number of premature deaths. Right now, if we had, call it 100 million doses of vaccine, sending some of them to New Zealand not have a big effect in reducing deaths because New Zealand has actually done a very good job in terms of public health, but sending them to Peru or Brazil or Panama or the United States would make a big difference. And so we should rank countries by how much vaccines will reduce premature deaths and distribute the vaccine that way. 
Once we've reduced premature deaths, we then need to distribute the vaccine based upon the number of, upon rectifying and ameliorating economic and social deprivations, reducing the number of cases of unemployment and poverty, opening schools around the world. Those are the goals. And then the third phase is returning back to normal, getting countries to herd immunity. We think that's what a fair and equitable distribution means. It doesn't mean giving all countries a flat amount in say 3% of their population. It doesn't mean giving countries uh, on the basis of the number of healthcare workers they have or the number of elderly they have. If you think about it, an emergency room doctor would not say, all right, everyone in the emergency room, I'm giving each of you five minutes to address your problems. They would say, all right, who's got the most serious problems? That person with the heart attack, we're gonna do that. And you who have a sore throat and worried about strep throat, you're gonna wait. That's what we should do when it comes to distributing a vaccine uh, in the world. Where can it do the most good? Um, and distributing it by healthcare workers, and people over 65, that means a lot more vaccine will go to developed countries that have more healthcare workers per population, have more people over 65 compared to developing countries, which we all know because of deprivation and disadvantage, have few healthcare workers per population and a life expectancy that doesn't, that means they don't have that many people over the age of 65. So taking that principle, as a way of distributing vaccine among countries would actually prejudice against the poorest countries in the world. We are facing new times. Hopefully our response will get better. Uh, but it, once we get a vaccine, there will be big challenges on how to distribute it among countries and how to distribute it within the United States. All I can hope is that our leadership is capable of stepping up to that challenge because the world will be better and American prestige and soft power will be greater if we take appropriate leadership in the fair and equitable distribution of a vaccine uh, against COVID. Thank you very much. Dr. Emanuel, thank you so much for your insightful remarks and for helping us gain a sense of just how complex this COVID pandemic is both now and going forward. Uh, you've really given us a lot to think about and we will certainly value your perspective as we dive deeper into this conversation. Thank you again. Thank you. Good luck with a great conversation and a great program. Thank you so much. Uh, I am going to now uh, present the panelists who will talk about COVID-19's impact around the world, something that many Americans have not heard a lot of. And so first I'd like to introduce Nadia Chow, who's director of the Mandarin Service for Radio Free Asia. Welcome, Nadia. Hey. Thank you, Joyce, and uh, hi, everyone. Um, welcome to join the uh, conversation. Very good. Let me introduce the rest and then we'll uh, jump right into our discussion. We have Henry Flores, who is the regional reporter and director of Unbound, an international organization that, uh, from what I've seen, is focused on doing a lot of good in this world. Welcome, Henry. I think you have to unmute, Henry. There you go. Thank you very much, Joyce, for having me tonight. It's a pleasure to be here with all of you. Great. And then we have Lenore Mudu, who's health correspondent for VOA's daily TV show, Africa 54. And she is also VOA senior's, uh, VOA's senior health reporter for Africa. Welcome, Lenore. Good evening, Joyce. I'm very happy to join the conversation tonight. Wonderful. And finally, an old colleague of mine, as I worked at Radio for Europe, Radio Liberty, as an associate director of broadcasting for several years, we have Nusha Bograti, who's the executive editor of Radio Farda. Welcome, Nusha. How are you today? Thank you very much. I'm doing great, and I'm very excited to be a part of the conversation. Thanks. Well, we're happy to have both, uh, all of you here, and you clearly heard Dr. Manuel's presentation, which I think was rather sobering. But let's get started with where we think this all began. 
with China. And that's why I am going to turn to Nadia now to ask for her perspective. Just did it begin in China? I mean, we want this to be conversational. This is not going to just be talking heads. So if you guys have questions, feel free to throw them at Nadia too. But Nadia, what is, has your reporting shown? Did it start in China? And what does the World Health Organization say about the origins of this pandemic? Uh, yes, Joy. Though uh, not everyone will agree, but uh, definitely our uh, report, our news uh, broke up from China. Uh, before the pandemic, you know, our because our, our report heavily uh, focused on China, Hong Kong, and Taiwan. Before the pandemic, we were paying attention to the protests in Hong Kong and also the Taiwan's presidential election. But after, you know, Wuhan was locked down in January 23rd, uh, actually that was Chinese New Year, uh, our focus wholly, sh you know, shifted to the COVID-19. And I would say, uh, at first, we uh, tried to uh, do a map, follow the John Hopkins, uh, you know, statistics, the numbers. And I can tell from our social media, in January and February, we had like explosive growth on our social media because people in China, they are thirsty for information. You know, one video we posted about the uh, citizen journalist Chen Qiushi, who tried to find out the truth of the pandemic and challenging CCP, uh, got 1.5 million viewers just, you know, in a week uh, after we posted. Because our uh, Facebook is in simplified Chinese. It's not very, you know, popular in China because they need a VPN to check out Facebook. So you can see that during, uh, because there's a lack of a transparency, uh, I think a lot of uh, Chinese at that time, from January to March, you know, they, they really uh, eager to know what the outside world was saying about them. And if, if that's, uh, or the government told them the truth. Mm. But on the other hand, um, I think because we cover Taiwan as well, I would say that um, Taiwan is not a member of a war house uh, organization, but because the SARS, you know, they learned their lesson. So we, we found out that Taiwan locked down um, their door very quickly, yeah. <laughs> even before, you know, WHO. When did they lock down? In January or? Uh, in January, I think they uh, they said that uh, no plants uh, will be allowed from China to Taiwan. Because mm -hmm. you know the whistleblower Dr. Li Wenliang, when he posted uh, the warning to his colleagues, uh, a lot of it was, the message was uh, picked up by uh, some Taiwanese doctors and uh, later on passed to Taiwanese officials. So they decided to conduct the investigation. And then they decided this is a serious. So even before they got any warning from WHO or any outside uh, authority, they just decided to take their own measure. So as far as we see, it did begin in China. And yes. did it begin at this wet market We were that, that has been said, or did it begin in a laboratory? Well, that's the controversial uh, you know, issue that people are still debating. Okay. Uh, at least uh, we saw uh, from all the other information so far we collected or been monitored since January, it started uh, from China. Even though Chinese governments say, or argue the origin may not come from China, but it's very obvious, you know, the first cases uh, was found in China. Got it. Uh, we're going yeah. to come back and talk to you a little bit later too about WHO and 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 whether it was effective in 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 warning people and if it did all the right things. But I want to bring in our colleagues here, and and really get a sense of how this virus has impacted other parts of the world. So, uh, Henry Flores, what, would you be so kind as to just give us your overview of how this has impacted uh, the Latin American countries? Thank you very much, Joyce. Um, it is important for me to say that I have a bit of a unique perspective uh, as a reporter with Anne Bound, which is an organization that serves children and elderly in Latin America, Asia, and Africa. 
And the reason I say this is because I don't only see reports or hear comments from families uh, as a reporter, but also from the communities of marginalized and people living in poverty. It is, it is important that we see COVID-19 impact from two levels. One is the micro view of it, in which local system has been overpassed by cases. People are not well educated about you know, what they need to do. Resources in different countries, because Latin America is so big, it has so many countries, so many different governments, and resources are very limited weak processes in the system of tracking people and you know people getting lost in the system a mother in ecuador a family in ecuador were told that a one of their relatives you know has passed away so they mourn the family and and days later their relative comes home because she wasn't really dead that's the level of complexity in terms of the macro the macro level that we're seeing when we bring it down to the communities, it has a tremendous impact. The challenges that we're seeing are so complex and we have so much to say about health. You know, uh, as I said, resources are so limited. And like here in Medellin, Colombia, where I live, people say nowadays everybody dies of COVID. Oh. It feels like nothing else, any other illness, you know, it's out there anymore. So all resources have been focused on COVID limiting the access of resources for other areas. But one of the, the aspects that I feel that it's very, very important is the financial part. The brunt of the risk and the brunt of the impact of this is falling on the families who can least afford it. You know, we are at risk of losing 30 years of hard-won progress against extreme poverty around the world. I've been watching families and interview families who suddenly have lost everything that they have worked for. But education, uh, Joyce, it's been an amazing problem. The digital divide that we're seeing at the moment has been impactful to me. We have, for example, a mother that I talked to here in Medellin, her name is Lydia. She has three children. She works from 7.30 in the morning down to 5.30 p.m. These three children only have access to one cell phone. And when Lydia comes home at 5.30, that's when her three children have to jump into the phone and research for homework and send out their, um, their, their work. That's when there is data on the phone or Lydia has uh, you know, time to, to, I mean, money to buy a recharge for the phone. But one aspect, Joyce, that people have not really talked about that much is the impact that the pandemic has had inside the house of families. Most families living in poverty and marginalized communities have very limited space. They've, they live in very dense and crowded space. So uh, imagine you have three children try to make your homework in a one bedroom house, you know, and they tell you, you have to be isolated. You know, how can you isolate yourself in a one bed? Social distancing, it's impossible, yeah. It's, it's impossible. So when that, when that happens, you don't only are faced to, you know, the realities of living in such a small crowd of places, but also with the stigma. In these communities, you were known. And there has been cases in which families have been threatened by, by being positive by COVID. Threatened. You know, you're, you're either out of this community or we're going to do some harm to you. That's the reality that has been, uh, you know, faced uh, in, in the communities. So that encourages people to hide the fact that they may have the, the disease, correct? When we go back to the health situation, having limited resources, you know, people don't go to the hospitals because they don't know how the situation is being managed. So they stay at home. Authorities say, you know, if you're positive, you got to isolate yourself in your home. You can't do that. But on the other hand, you have to do something to make some income, some living. And, and that forces you to somehow expose others or expose yourself to go out and make some living for your family. But within all of this, there is, there's amazing uh, uh, and very hopeful 
situations that I have seen uh, in, in areas in which families, you know, are using technology like WhatsApp app to send each other messages of encouragement, to send each other information about COVID, to send each other messages of hope and need, or the flag system in which families have put out a flag in the communities and other members of the community see that flag. It depends on the country is the color, but that means I need help. I run out of food. And that's the reality that we're seeing that is very hopeful and the impact that we see in Latin America. But yes, I, I, I wanna bring some other folks in, but let me just ask you this. Does the virus appear to actually be contained in most of Latin America or does it depend upon the country? It depends upon the country and people don't really trust the official numbers out there because unfortunately this has been politicized at all kinds of levels. No, I don't believe that. <laughs> Of course, right? All right, well, stay tuned. We're going to come back to you to get some more information on this, but I want to bring in Lenore because the truth is in this country, we definitely have not heard anything about what's really going on with the virus in Africa. So Lenore, please let us know what you're hearing and what your reporting has shown. Thank you so much, Joyce. I'm glad I can join this conversation. Listen, Africa is an interesting case because when this uh, pandemic started, there were so many projections in terms of uh, this uh, crisis being very, very dramatic and drastic on the continent. Many people predicted that Africa would be one of the most affected regions with millions of deaths, not, not infections, but deaths, uh, because countries in Africa are underdeveloped, a lack of proper infrastructure to, to handle this kind of health crisis. But uh, what has been happening is very different, as we can see. Uh, the first case of coronavirus was detected in February, and initially they were concerned that uh, exposure would come from China because of direct uh, uh, travel, travel uh, infrastructure between China and some African countries. Uh, funny enough, well, uh, maybe ironically, it, uh, what we've seen is uh, infections, the first infections came from Europe. Uh, Italy, precisely, the very first uh, person who was infected uh, from Sub-Saharan Africa was an Italian worker in Nigeria. And uh, so when that happened, one of the first challenges was the ability to test. Testing was a very difficult uh, problem because uh, only two countries had uh, the possibilities to test the infrastructure, Senegal and South Africa. So, uh, but what we also saw was that quickly uh, the, African, the Africa Center for Disease Control and Prevention uh, kind of scale up uh, its uh, resources in helping countries to, uh, to, to be able to test. There was also donation from a Chinese um, businessman, uh, Jack Ma, who gave a thousand tests per country. Uh, so uh, there were things like that, that that quickly happened on the continent. One of the advantages that the continent had was the fact that it took a little while before the first case was reported, and this allowed time to African countries to prepare. So African countries had enough time to prepare. And there's also uh, another uh, advantage, if you will, is the fact that African countries have been used to dealing with health crisis, sure. right? Yeah. Ebola, you talk about measles outbreak, you talk about, um, you know, you know, there have been strong upgrades over the years that Africans, uh, African continent, the African continent had to deal with. So this gave some type of ex experience and leverage to countries to quickly uh, delve into their experience and their resources that they had uh, in the past. Uh, one of the last uh, outbreaks that was really um, was affected uh, affected uh, countries continent continent-wise was the Ebola outbreak. When the outbreak happened in 2015 in West Africa, uh, quickly other countries were aware and, and started to put in place measures to prevent uh, the, the infection from spreading uh, cross-border. That helped. Having said that, there have been quite a lot of challenges. And uh, my colleague from Latin America mentions, I see a lot of similarities there because you take a country, a country, any given country where a lot of people live in poverty. And when you talk about social distance, social distancing measures, it's, it's very, very difficult. Think about the market woman who has to go to the market every day to sell her corn or sell her, her uh, 
I don't know, her, her donuts. Right. And that money, that's what she uses to buy food for her children, to feed her children at night. If there is confinement, social distancing, where does she find the money? How does she sell her food to feed her children? So you saw an increase in, in hung, people going hungry, uh, people being confined at home. And as he described uh, earlier, people are confined in households. A lot of people in one, one room, how do you social distance? Yeah, so there, there have been a lot, of, a lot of challenges as well. So although uh, the, the progression of the outbreak has been somehow attenuated, there have been an attenuated outcome. There have been some, some major, major challenges that uh, Africa had experienced. And uh, we can still see the impact. So is it still spreading or do you feel that in most of the countries it's contained? Well, it's, um, it's still spreading, but not as much as it did at some point. Uh, right now, for example, we have uh, 1,260,400 cases uh, on the continent and 30,000 deaths. And uh, the recoveries are over a million. So when you look at it, uh, it's, it's, it's kind of good compared to other regions of the world, but one death is one too many, of course. And, and given the realities with the infrastructures that are very limited, uh, it, Africa cannot afford this pandemic to grow exponentially. Got it. Well, let, let's bring in Nusha here because Nusha, we really need to hear, I mean, the problem for Iran also is that it's under sanctions. I mean, it has a hard time getting basic medicines and, and help for the people when they are sick. So Nusha, tell us, give us an overview of what's going on with Iran, a country I visited and that I really, I love it. It's a beautiful place. Yes, thank you, Joyce. Uh, you're right, Iran is under sanction. Uh, also, uh, in you know, parallel with that is the mishandling of the economic situation which has been going on and corruption and everything which all contribute to the worsening of the situation to be the truth it's a horrifying situation we can say in general but we cannot go uh, into very specific details because basically we do not have any knowledge it has been a much politicized issue uh, from the beginning and uh, the official figures are basically flat lies. You know, right. uh, we have 22,000, that's the latest official number that we had, and uh, something around 377,000 uh, infections, which is a joke. The government is in a serious disinformation campaign and trade about the magnitude of the outbreak in Iran. Uh, you know, the thing is that, Joyce, not only the government did not try to stop the outbreak, or like many other countries, at least stay actionless about it. It actively contributed to the spread of the disease. Uh, it hit the existence of the virus for weeks uh, for political reasons. We had knowledge here in Radio Free Europe, in Radio Farda about the existence. We reported on that, so that is a known fact. It was, the government was well aware of the existence of the coronavirus, but encouraged people heavily to attend public events. It was holding the parliamentary election, which was the first one after the two huge uprisings across the country. In a couple of years, the Islamic Republic saw the turnout in this uh, election as a serious test to its you know, sort of eligibility. And uh, because of that, hit the existence of outbreak and encourage people to show up at the polls. Uh, also, it was going to hold two mass events vital to its reputation. One was the funeral of General Qasem Soleimani, head of the IRGC Quds Force, which was killed by United States forces in Iraq. Iran wanted to hold a huge ceremony, as huge as possible for him. Also, it was uh, simultaneous with the anniversary of the revolution of 1979. Again, a matter of reputation. And the government was hiding the outbreak, knowingly encouraging public to show up in masses. Uh, from the very first days of accepting the existence of outbreak in Iran, however, it was on a trade of downplaying the uh, 
um, effect of the virus uh, in the country. Um, Hassan Rouhani, for instance, the president, has a very, very um, famous remark. He said on a Wednesday back in March uh, that from the coming uh, Saturday, you know, Saturday is the beginning of the week in Iran, from this Saturday, everything has to go to normal and will go to normal. Well, you know, <laughs> too many Saturdays have uh, gone by since that. Uh, Yucha, I have to tell you that what back. you're describing sounds a lot like the United States. <laughs> I have to tell you, it really, really does. So, so let me do this. I want to, because we, we really have to want to get some other uh, opinions. Sure. In Let's quickly go. You've described the case clearly, Anusha, in which the government did not respond correctly. So I want to quickly go around and just get you guys to talk a little bit about, for example, Nadia. What about the Chinese government? How did it respond? And if, what do we know about WHO? And I'd like Henry and, 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 and Lenoir and Anusha to also and to talk about that a little bit more, the government's response. Nadia. Uh, I think in, in China's case, first the government tried to cover it up or downplay because mm -hmm. they want the Chinese people to have a good uh, New Year uh, vacation and they wanted the economies to do well. And later on that, uh, the local government and the central government tried to blend each other. So the transparency became a big problem. And that's why uh, I think the international community began to doubt about the death toll of Chinese government release and even the WHO's message because they got the information from Chinese government. So, so basically um, the Chinese government couldn't be trusted and, and it gave out wrong information. Uh, that's what we saw. I mean, from uh, the number uh, and also what happened in the rest of the, you know, to, to the rest of the world, because the number released by Chinese government is relatively very low. Yeah. Uh, yeah. Our, our, one of our reporter has to check out the funeral home to see how many aunts were actually, you know, their uh, family received to count down the death toll in Wuhan city. Wow. So, uh, even nowadays, I don't think, you know, the victims uh, were uh, given the truth, you know, they deserve uh, how many people actually died and uh, are they properly, you know, the cases are properly uh, handled. I think some of the victims in China, they are still appealing and uh, asking for the uh, compensation from the government, even though, you know, they're being harassed by the police, they continue sure. to do that. Sure, I want to tell our audience, the people who are, who are uh, watching this, that you can type in your questions in that little chat box and we will try to get to them. Uh, we don't have a lot of time, but we're going to try to get to as many as we can, okay? And Henry, Joyce, just one yeah. more point that okay. yeah. Because it's a totalitarian government. I think in the beginning, Chinese, China made a mistake, but later on, they also took a drastic uh, you know, measure to lock down the city and uh, force people to be quarantined and build a big hospital to put the people inside. So, uh, you know, we see there's a lot of criticism, but also some Chinese seems to believe that their government are very effective uh, in regards to uh, dealing with the pandemic in the later part. Uh, so there is a, a I think, you know, half and half, you know, mixed uh, criticism well, and the praise. Well, I think your point is well made that in, if you have an authoritarian government, they can order people to do what they need to do, and the people do it, unlike in this country, <laughs> order and they don't do it, right? They don't have a choice, you know. Right. So, Henry, tell us, what, what, what were the, the countries in, in Latin America that maybe did it, were a model for how to do this, how to contain this, and which were those that weren't so good? That's very difficult to respond, Joyce, because as I said before, the diversity of governments that we have in Latin America is so diverse that it's difficult to say something like that. On the other hand, the numbers, official numbers, are not trustable. Uh, one, like I said, politicizing this topic has created a lot of things. Some of them are lack of proper response. Uh, resources being detained by, you know, political reasons. But one thing is for sure, governments have uh, uh, failed to provide protection and provide the, the, the means for families. For example, Peru, 
there's a high uh, rate of domestic violence among communities in Peru. And one group of mothers in one of our communities in Huaycan, they had gotten together before the pandemic and organized themselves to work towards that uh, topic, providing shops, formations for mothers and parents. When the pandemic hit, you know, domestic violence went up. The, the governments didn't really respond or didn't really provide resources to, you know, attack that. But in that community of Huaycan in Peru, it didn't happen. So what, what it seems to me is that it doesn't really matter what the government actually says or does, but these have to be taken from the communities and by the communities and act upon all those aspects that get lost in this macro view of the system that many times those responses by governments don't really get to the communities who are uh, marginalized. Very good. And someone was asking just quickly, how seriously are people in Colombia taking the threat of the virus? Are you seeing the same willful ignorance that sometimes exists amongst people in the U.S.? I just, went jogging, I just went jogging today, um, um, Joyce, and 99% of people are wearing masks and they're, they're taking everything. Excellent. Colombia is almost the size of the whole Central America uh, right. of land, so it's a big country and, you know, variables all over. But I would say Colombian people are doing a good job. Excellent. Lenore, let, let's hear from you. What, what countries in Africa really were probably a model and weren't, what weren't? I think I can start with uh, Rwanda. Rwanda was, is really a model in terms of how they handled this pandemic very quickly on. Uh, Rwanda was the first country to, to impose lockdown measures early on, as, far as, they, as soon as they had the, the first cases of the, 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 the virus. Uh, they, they also really moved forward with some innovative uh, approach and innovative ideas. For example, they used robots to, to, to deliver food, medication, and also to conduct temperature uh, check uh, instead of, uh, well, in, a, in adding to their capacity uh, with their health, healthcare workers, they use robots. That was uh, really a, a, different, a different approach, uh, having robots I'm going around in robots. Yeah, robotics. They, oh, they use robots. robots. Yeah. Oh, yes. Yeah, yeah. Sorry, my, my accent. Okay, yeah, that's all right. I got it. <laughs> okay, that is innovative. Robots going yeah, around. Very, yeah, very, very innovative. They use robots to, to deliver uh, medicine, food, and, and also check temperatures. And that, that was very good. They also did uh, uh, quickly contact tracing. They also have universal health care in Rwanda. So that helped as well in terms of uh, uh, caring for the population and providing uh, treatment. And um, one of the things they also did is, uh, is um, contact tracing was very efficient. And they sent some of their doctors to the DRC to get trained in, in uh, pandemic response with uh, the Ebola uh, outbreak. So those, those ex these experts went to DRC, received training, came back, and were able to handle it with, with an edge in, in, in their knowledge. Uh, so uh, more, Mauritius was also a country that did very well. Mm. And, and Mauritius was one country that uh, observers said was going to be hardly hit in the beginning, but they, they did not, they really turned things around. Uh, the government was very aggressive and even criticized at some point bec uh, for their response. Uh, they used force when they needed to, to ensure that people were respecting lockdown measures. And, but at the same time, they provided help to those who needed. So it was kind of a carrot and stick approach. Economic and help, did they provide economic help? Yes, or? economic help, um, people who needed food, they, they, they did some food delivery services. So it was, it was a really a combination of approach. And then you had a country like Tanzania where some people do not take the, uh, the virus seriously. Mm. You have, a, and as, as the speaker, the keynote speaker uh, said earlier, leadership is so important because you have the leader who said, who said for example, some things, it's a hoax, you know. Uh, yeah. When he, the test, he said that uh, it tested uh, a goat, it tested some fruits, 
and uh, those results came back positive for COVID-19. Oh, okay. So the tests were not uh, efficient tests. And so the, the, the population was very doubtful about, uh, about the virus. Not oh. everybody, of course, but sure. this really no, but can create some... Exactly. Yeah. Leadership is very important. Absolutely. So, so yeah, it's been, it's been a combination. Uh, you know, Af Africa has 54 countries, member state 55 for the African Union. So each country is different and uh, each experience is different. So you see, you've, you've seen where people have done quite well and then South Africa, for example, is struggling with its numbers. Got it. All right, Nusha, I want to ask you, get back to you, because you've laid out a pretty, a pretty clear picture that the government there really, uh, Rouhani really did not uh, lead the people as, as well as he should have. But tell me, how are the people feeling? Is this something that they recognize? Are they likely to express their dissatisfaction with this government? Could this cause unrest in the country outside of just people getting sick? Well, uh, it could, but, uh, you know, given, the, given some factors, including the economic situation and also the level of cruelty that uh, we observed during the past two rounds of uprising across the country, it might be unlikely to see uprising in Iran, at least for a few months. Of course, everything is unpredictable when it comes to countries like Iran, but um, you know, it, it is not that much likely to, to predict that. But at the same time, people are very much dissatisfied with how government is handling the situation. We've had tons of reactions and feedbacks from people uh, in different cities of Iran about what is going on. You know, basically, you, you're talking about what governments are doing. The only thing that Iranian government is doing great is hiding facts and trying to normalize the situation. You know, for instance, uh, you know, there, there have been instances that people inside the country, the officials are coming out and speaking up about the, how uh, everything is falsified. For example, in April, the head of Tehran's city council, uh, Mohsen Hashemi, said that the, num the, actual, the actual numbers are much higher, followed by that. Another member of the city council of Tehran said that the numbers are being uh, basically uh, doctored by uh, Iranian government for the public and the statistics are forbidden to go out. And he said that the number that the Tehran city council has uh, is much different from what it, the government is announcing. The reaction of the government was to uh, summon him to the court and he is still awaiting the sentence to be handed down. Then in August, actually a member of anti-COVID national force of the country said that government's statistics and reactions are not um, basically, uh, the, the, the statistics are far from the truth and they're manipulating the statistics for political reasons. Government's reaction was to ban the newspaper which interviewed him. So, you know, th this is something that has been going on for some time and the dimension of the uh, spread outbreak is uh, seriously downplayed and we really have no clear idea about how big of an uh, outbreak it is. But we knew for fact uh, before the government started to announce it or at the beginning stages that it's that uh, at what magnitude it is lying. For instance, at the very beginning days of, uh, that the Islamic Republic accepted the existence of outbreak, it was in late February. Um, the Islamic Republic uh, had uh, announced that it has something like um, 400, 380 cases in the country. And then we did some investigative report and uh, we, were able to track down 97 cases in which Iranians or somebody who had traveled back from Iran had basically transferred the virus to another country. Uh, the virus had traveled from Iran to 18 other countries. 13 countries reported their, their first cases to be received from Iran. So that would be very much illogical to imagine that out of 
400 cases, 100 were, you know, traveled abroad. Or, you know, at that very time, 10 uh, officials were tested positive for COVID-19. Again, that would be very illogical to imagine that, you know, officials who have the best kind of healthcare in, in Iran uh, would be, you know, uh, among that very few poll, 10 people would be uh, affected while only a few hundred across the country. Well, you, you make a very good argument, Nusha, that uh, clearly things are not uh, transparent there. And well, it's, believe it or not, we're at the end of our hour. And I, I want to turn it over now to, uh, for, for the closing remarks to John. But before I do, I just want to quickly, just quickly get you guys to tell me, if you're in your areas, is there any optimism that we're going to have a vaccine that is a, a solid, safe vaccine within the uh before the end of the year let's say is there any hope of that just quickly nadia oh well china already joined the competition for the vaccine uh, we can tell that they are uh they they said that they already uh, uh passed by the second stage and uh, now uh some of them already received the vaccine okay um right. they, that's the message they sent out but i don't think uh, i'm not sure the world believe in that you know okay yeah would like to receive vaccine from china <laughs> henry what are your what's latin america thinking do they think china has a vaccine they're going to send their way quickly well we're not really waiting right now for a vaccine to be you know distributed uh fast but that's in the in the people's people's mind and that's what that's what we're hoping for but it's important to have in mind that it's not only about having a vaccine but it's also about people trusting Absolutely. Absolutely. Which have failed them. And also, like, uh, like uh, Lenore said, you know, scamming on tests, on vaccines like in India. They've been, you know, selling vaccines already. So it's, it's, I think that the communities themselves are the core recipients of that, and they are the ones that are getting organized and protecting themselves. But vaccine is something they're hoping for, but it's going to be, it's going to take a little time. Bravo, Lenore. Uh, thank you. Lenore, what are, you, what are they thinking in Africa? I guess in Africa, it, a vaccine is important, of course, but at this point, it's not so much when is the vaccine, when will the vaccine be available? It is trust, as you mentioned earlier. Will people trust, will people, and what, if there is a vaccine that is released by the end of the year, uh, efficacy, uh, is and safety is uh, something that people are concerned with. So Africa has been part of the first trial, clinical trial. So clearly, some people are, are, are with okay. the idea of a va vaccine, but a lot of there is a sentiment of mistrust when it comes to vaccines. So Absolutely. there is work to be done there. <laughs> Absolutely, in the U.S. as well. <laughs> Nusha, we're going to let you have the last word. Are Iranians thinking if there's a vaccine, they'll even get a shot at it? Well, um, you know, there's always hope for vaccine. I think that's the global uh, thing. But at the same time, since Iran is under sanction, of course, uh, it is uh, the, the medicine and medical supplies are exempt from the sanctions. But at the same time, financial tr uh, transactions and everything make it more difficult for Iran to receive any kind of uh, equipment or any kind of basically goods. So that might add to the concerns of people. But uh, right now, what they're most concerned about is the mishandling, basically, of the situation by the government. Well, thank you. You guys, I want to applaud you. You have been fantastic in the amount of time that we had. Very concise and very informative. I just, from the bottom of my heart, thank you for making my job easy. And so with that, I'm going to turn it over to John Krieger, who's going to offer the closing remarks. Thank you all so much. Thank you for having us. Thank you. Absolutely. Thank you. Thanks, for Joyce. Nice thank seeing you. you after so many years. <laughs> All right. Thank you. John. Thank you, Joyce. And thank you so much to our panelists and to everyone involved in this evening's program. And tomorrow we're going to talk even more about the vaccine and about the pursuit of solutions to COVID-19 with leading public health professionals and doctors. One more time, I want to thank uh, our panelists. It's so clear and so stark through this conversation and just throughout the last few months, how important good, effective, honest journalism is to getting information out and to responding to a crisis. 
Um, I also want to thank our sponsors at Harrisburg University and KU Medical Center. And a big thank you to our keynote speaker, Dr. Ezekiel Emanuel, for an extremely informative presentation and for his continued service to our country. I encourage you all once again to join us tomorrow night. We'll same time, 5 to 6 p.m. Like I said, we'll be talking to uh, leading public health officials and doctors about the U.S. and global response, the pursuit of a vaccine, and also what we can learn from this crisis for future pandemics and global problems. So with that, we'll wrap up, and I will one more time say join us tomorrow, and please, please, please uh, support your local World Affairs Council. Uh, conversations and connections like this are vital to solving uh, borderless problems, and it's the local councils that make those conversations happen. So please support your local councils, and we'll see you tomorrow night. Thanks again, all. Stay healthy and stay safe.